welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us this week. Uh, there is history in Washington before the U.S. Supreme Court as an abortion case is being heard from the state of uh, uh, Mississippi, and it is a 15-week viability bill that's being challenged by a uh, Planned Parenthood and pro-choice group that's made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And, of course, this case may be the case that strikes down Roe and sends abortion law back to the states. And if it does that, then in Ohio we have a heartbeat bill that was passed a few years ago, and it would ban abortion in the state of Ohio when a heartbeat can be detected. So again, for pro-lifers who have waited long and arduous battle over the decades about abortion in our country and in our state, this may be the time. And yet, I, I get the idea that some of the emotions and enthusiasm is checked by pro-lifers uh, because uh, 30 years ago, when Casey was before the, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1992, many of us believed at that time that that would have overturned Roe. It did not. and but uh, So that's why pro-life community is a little jaded on what to be optimistic and hopeful for of what might actually happen after all these decades and years of education of uh, that life uh, is in the womb and needs to be protected. We're going to go right to a clip from the hearing this week, and it is uh, Justice Samuel Alito, one of my favorites on the bench, by the way, and he is questioning the pro-abort attorney uh, who's defending, uh, you know, a arguing against the pro-life law of Mississippi. And let's go to that, because I think it's very key to this case in the hearing that was this week before the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's go to that. May I ask you a question about stare decisis, counsel? Um, your, your colleagues on the other side have emphasized that uh, Casey rejected Roe's trimester framework and replaced it with an undue burden standard. They argue that the undue burden standard was uh, not well known to the law before that. Uh, and, and then they argue that the undue burden standard has evolved over time, too, in ways that the court has found difficult to agree upon. In Hellerstadt, for example, they, they, they point out in their briefs that uh, the court seemed to suggest that a court should consider both the benefits and the burdens associated with the uh, proposed restriction. In June Medical, more recently, uh, the court splintered on, on, on that same question, uh, whether benefits could be considered or only burdens. And so the argument goes that this has proved to be uh, putting aside all the other um, obviously difficult questions in the case, that, that, that the standard itself has proved difficult to administer and that that is relevant to the stare decisis analysis. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Yes, Your Honor. The first point I'd like to make is the undue burden test is not at issue in this case. That is the test that applies to regulations, not prohibitions. And the state has conceded that this is a prohibition. In fact, that's the title of this law, is an act to prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. And the only thing that's at issue in this case is the viability line. And the viability line has been enduringly workable. The lower federal courts have 
applied it consistently and uniformly for 50 years, and the Fifth Circuit here below had no difficulty striking down this law unanimously 3-0. So it's been an exceedingly workable standard. And if I may return to your question, Mr. Chief Justice, a reasonable possibility standard would not be workable. It would ultimately boil down to an argument that states can prohibit a category of women from exercising a constitutional right merely because of the number of people in the category. And that's just not how constitutional rights work. A state would never say that it could ban religious services on a Wednesday evening, for example, simply because most people could attend religious services on another night of the week. So, so I actually just wanted to, uh, th 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 that's helpful, I think. I just want to make sure I understand what you're telling me, counsel, that, that if the court were to, in this case, step past viability and apply undue burden, the undue burden test to uh, regulations prior to viability, you would agree with the other side, I, I think, that that's not a workable standard. Is, is, that, is that a fair understanding of what you're, you're telling the court? No, Your Honor. I, I you believe, think that would be workable? I believe, that, if I may clarify, I believe the undue burden test has been workable for regulations. That I, I, I understand that. I, I, if it were to apply, if the court were to, and I thought this is what you were saying in response to the Chief Justice, but maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, please correct me if I am. But it, what, what is your argument against applying the undue burden standard prior to viability? If the undue burden standard, as this court laid out in Casey, which includes the viability line, no, is no, no. applied, I'm, I'm asking. I know, I know, we're fighting the hypothetical here, counsel. All right, accept the hypothetical. Hypothetically, the court were to extend the undue burden standard to regulations prior to viability. Would that be workable, or would that not be workable in your view? Without viability, it would not be workable, Your Honor, because it would ultimately, again, always come down to a claim that states can bar a certain category of people from exercising this right simply because of the number of people in the category. And that's not a workable standard, and it's not a, a constitutional I appreciate standard. that clarification. Thank you. And again, that was Justice Samuel Lito questioning uh, Center for Reproductive Rights lawyer Julie Rickleman, uh, who was arguing against the Mississippi uh, pro-life law, which uh, prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. And the question is viability. And with us on the phone is Attorney Josh Brown from Columbus, Ohio. He has actually argued before the Ohio Supreme Court. He is licensed to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. He is a constitutional attorney, and he's a friend of the Ohio Christian Alliance, and he has actually represented us before the Ohio Supreme Court on a case in the last few years. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you, my friend, for uh, joining us today to discuss this, and I know you're ex as excited about it as we are as to what this actually might mean. And, of course, uh, today is when the hearing was uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision uh, may be made later this week. The announcement might be next month, or it may be in June, where still there's some debate about that as to when we might know what the court actually decided. Uh, but the court also did something in recent weeks with the Texas uh, heartbeat bill, which is close to our hearts here in Ohio, because we have a heartbeat bill that we worked on for 10 years with a group of pro-life groups across Ohio worked on that. Uh, and we want to give credit to who credit is due. Janet Folger actually championed that bill, and we all uh, played uh, assistance in getting it over the finish line. But the fact is, is that uh, Ohio would have a heartbeat bill if 
the decision was to throw the uh, uh, basically throw Roe out and send it back to the states. Your thoughts along those lines? Is that what would happen in this case with the justices making a decision? What are what are a couple of different ways in which they can decide this case? In other words, uh, Chris, I think that uh, to answer your question, that we really don't know because jurisprudence on abortion has made no sense since 1973, and many commentators have talked about that, including um, Justice Scalia, even in some of his opinions. Uh, And so I'll tell you a little bit about the evolution, and then uh, if they depart from that course or if they, they could double down and go backwards, they could go forwards. But Roe versus Wade found that there was a constitutional right to have an, a fundamental constitutional right to have an abortion uh, based on the idea of right to privacy and right to make a woman to make her own choices. In 1993, in Casey, they upheld the uh, underlying principle of Roe, which is a right to an abortion, but they changed the structure of it and used this idea called viability. And in order for the state to impose any restrictions on abortion pre-viability, they have to uh, <clears throat> not impose an undue burden on the constitutional right to an abortion or the alleged constitutional right. So read the documents in this case, they are attacking the underlying premise of Roe versus Wade 100%. And they are saying that it was bad law and that there's nowhere found in the Constitution a right to an abortion. And what you heard there at the end of that clip is really interesting. And if you want to go further on that, I would actually uh, read Professor Lee Strang's amicus brief in this case, and it's available online to discuss this blog. Um, In that brief, he explained how the other side is trying to use the Obergefell decision, which was the decision to uh, mandate gay marriage, and they're trying to apply that to abortion. And the way they're doing it is they're saying that the premise to Obergefell is that anybody who uh, is excluded from a right that is not uh, that's not the constitutional. And so they said that there's an underlying right to abortion to um, to marriage, and if you exclude a certain group, then uh, that's unconstitutional. So they're trying to apply that to uh, abortion. I think that's really awkward and, and not a good fit. And so, like I said, String explains that pretty well. Uh, to, to really get to answering your question, though, I think that they could take it the next step. They could go all the way into uh, attacking and getting rid of the underlying premise of Roe itself. They've shown a reluctance to do that as a court for a long time. So they may try to split the baby in some way and try to come up with another framework to layer, to layer on top of the underlying premise to row. That's when it would get so unpredictable and confusing because the workability of the existing viability system is at issue here. And that's just the practicality of getting consistent rulings from one court in one case to the next. And it's been so inconsistent and so um, unworkable that that's what has really created the premise for the court to have this in front of it of itself. The only way to solve that problem is what you're saying, which is to make it a state issue again. The proponents have have uh, cited the Tenth Amendment 
which is the, the amendment that says any rights not delegated to the federal government are delegated to the states or retained by the states, actually. So there's a lot of different directions they could take it. Well, let's talk about Chief Justice John Roberts. When he first came to the court, we saw him as a libertarian. We saw him as um, uh, you know, someone who wasn't going to overturn uh, existing law, um, and he believed in um, states' rights in that sense, federalism. But he has not done that. He has, you know, in the cases he's decided and been the swing vote, it's just been just the opposite. So we've not seen this from him, but we might see from him now. As uh, today, let me read this statement. Uh, John Roberts, why isn't 15 weeks enough to choose whether to abort a baby? Uh, the question he put forward to uh, the folks representing the, uh, uh, the pro-abort uh, interest in Mississippi. He says, if you think that the issue is of choice, that... A uh, woman should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy. That supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice, opportunity of two choice, Robert said. And why would 15 weeks be an appropriate line? Viability, it seems to me, and there's that word viability again, it seems to me doesn't have anything to do with choice, but it, if, if it, it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? Now, again, this is... Um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is going to be an important vote on this decision. So let's go through the votes here, shall we? I mean, uh, President Trump, in an unprecedented manner for a uh, single-term president, was able to appoint three justices, count them, three justices to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not even sure when that happened <laughs> in the past. Uh, so it, the left just went apoplactic when that happened. And, of course, they they fought vigorously and uh, doxed and you know, did everything that they could but outside of creating a riot up on uh, Capitol Hill when the proceedings for their confirmation was going on, especially with uh, uh, Kavanaugh. But um, here we go. We've got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and um, and so, you know, I don't, and, you know, what do you think about the three new justices, Josh, and where they're going to come down on this decision? I think Amy, uh, Amy uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. President Trump appointed his three justices. The characteristics he was looking for was judges who were not beholden to the academic community and would rule based on what the law says, what the law is. And it appears he hit a home run with all three of them. I think he was particularly interested in uh, judges who weren't deferential also to uh, the bureaucracy. And what you have here is uh, something that has been sort of this uh, sidebar in the law where there's all these exceptions and all these unique types of situations, but it's more the social issues. So uh, we don't know um, really where any of them are going to come down on an abortion issue because uh, I don't know that that's uh, what they were selected for, but we know they had a history of uh, showing a more pro-life um, uh, background, I guess you could say, uh, or at least giving us reason to believe we could count their, uh, on their votes. I don't know if they're willing to go as far as to overrule uh, Roe all the way. So what I would anticipate is just the nature of the court. They tend to just want to layer rules on top of rules. And so I think that there's a good chance we're just going to get another layer. <clears throat> you know, and, and the things that Justice Roberts said that you quoted, that doesn't indicate to me he's ready to overrule Roe. Ro. That tells me that he is 
interested in playing with the system and tinkering with it a little bit more, which I would uh, suggest will only lead to another, you know, several years of more confusion and with an unworkable law because uh, fundamentally you're trying to enforce something as a constitutional right that is not a constitutional right. And it's not a constitutional right for a reason because uh, the, if you, you know, uh, Professor Strang actually wrote about this very well in his amicus that I referred to earlier, the amicus brief that he sp- submitted in this case. The fundamental, the fundamental issue, as well as the person uh, who has not been born yet, should be recognized as a human being endowed with human rights. And the ju- the justices since the 70s have not acknowledged that problem. Blackman, Justice Blackman, wrote that those rights are not endowed upon an unborn person. But even though people have disagreed with it, they haven't had the courage to overrule it and go straight after it. So that's really what needs to happen here, as Professor String really outlined very clearly. They need to go after the issue of when does human life begin? And if you really ask that question, uh, it's very hard not to conclude that uh, human life begins uh, at some point before actual birth. And that line that's being drawn, the viability, it's arbitrary and it doesn't make any sense uh, because, first of all, it's a line that moves. It's not a clear line. And <clears throat> there's all kinds of things that are in place by the time you get to viability, <clears throat> which is a heart, you, you know, you're going to have a heartbeat by that time. Fetus will be able to feel pain. Uh, you have a DNA code that is unique to that individual that's already been formed. So <clears throat> um, my concern is, again, that they would. Um, just complicate the matter rather than simplifying it by overruling Roe. Well, I understand your thoughts along those lines, Josh, but I'm going to tell you, I think that the court is going to uh, uphold this Mississippi law, which would send it back to the states. I mean, whether we're saying that that overturns Roe, I do believe that this will be upheld, which also means that the Texas heartbeat bill will be upheld. And for all intents and purposes, it will mean that abortion goes back to the states. I think this is the time. I think a, a lot of people like yourself who have seen the courts do all these kinds of things over the years. But something just tells me that this is the moment uh, that we're going to see it go back to the states. Does it mean that abortion would end in, in America? No. Because states like New York and California and other blue states, have uh, they have abortion laws up to the ninth month in New York. You saw Governor Cuomo, who left uh, disgracefully out of office, driven out of office. He, he was championing and, and celebrating and applauding that you could abort a fetus up to the time in which it was born. Uh, that man is now gone, and uh, so that's in the state of New York. In Ohio, we have a heartbeat bill, and in Texas and in Mississippi and other states, Arkansas and Alabama, these are states that have pro-life legislation on the books, and I think that we're going to see a court that sends it back to the states, and it's going to be a great moment, but it doesn't mean that it's over. Now, you know, when we think about this, folks, about abortion, we think about these nine justices. Those are just nine people. Look, uh, our form of government, you know, have three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. And so, you know, as John Adams said, our Constitution is made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. You know, Josh, when we think about this, the last generation, last 40 years, almost 50 years now that this was decided, 
America has been on a very slippery slope of immorality across the board. You talked about that the, the those who are trying to support this abortion uh, law uh, and and oppose the pro-life law uh, using Oberfeld, which basically legalized sodomy in this country uh, with a, a decision on the court a few years ago. So let's not have any pretenses here. I mean, when we think about it, you don't think about Sotomayor or, uh, you know, Justice Kagan, uh, you know, voting in support of the Mississippi law. That's not going to happen. But as I look at Justice Thomas and Justice Alito and uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, Amy Comey Barrett, who's the uh, junior of the court, and the Chief Justice Roberts, they could have a 5-4 decision here. They could have a 6-3 decision. I'm suspecting if that's the case, I think Alito's probably going to uh, write the majority opinion. What's your thoughts on that, if it goes that way? Who would write the majority opinion? It's a good question, because traditionally it would have been Anthony Kennedy, but you know he's been replaced on the court. So um, I would love it if Alito is the one who actually writes the opinion, because you know, he's one of the most eloquent and most intelligent uh, lawyers that I'm aware of. But uh, Thomas would be a great one to write it as well, especially since, you know, he tends to get right to the point and show lets the law speak for itself and and um, relies on the law for his opinions rather than uh, my criticism of Justice Kennedy was that uh, his personal opinion was uh, his legal opinion a lot of the time. And so uh, um, <clears throat> I do think that uh, it'd be great to have Alito write the opinion. Well, that's right. And so so let's talk about timing now. So I've heard a couple of different reports that actually they're going to be deciding this by uh, week's end, uh, but that uh, we won't know the decision till next month, or will be will it be in June when they normally release a lot of the of the decisions? what what when may we hear what they have decided in this case? I don't know, uh, but I'll tell you that there is a process more behind the scenes of the injunctions and uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the, just, the new justice, uh, had uh, was assigned to the Texas case and she did not impose an injunction on it. So that was a, I think that's what really motivated people in this case because uh, normally in the past the judges justice have put injunctions on those types of laws. And so the fact that she didn't uh, was a very promising sign. So behind the scenes, uh, it might be a good idea to take a look at the injunction process, and uh, that might give us an idea of how they're going to rule, especially since one of the factors considered in an injunction is the likelihood of success on the merits of the underlying case. I want to leave folks with this poll. In a Marquette poll recently from September of a 1,000 adults uh, polled, it said, should, would you support a state law that bans abortion after 15 weeks? 40% say yes, 34% no. And I got to tell you, Josh, the, the momentum is towards life in this country. So that's the good trend. We need to keep it going and teaching our young people about life begins at conception and in the womb and needs to be protected. Well, Josh, thanks for being my guest today. In fact, we'll take that amicus brief that you referenced. We'll put it up on our website for people to read uh, more clearly, and that will be at ohioca.org. And you can visit us there, and we'll have that amicus brief on the court's decision, or pending decision, shall we say. Josh, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you, Chris. Great to talk to you. Thank you, my friend. God bless. 
And if you missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. Thanks for listening. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe. On D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org. I'm Johnette Cruz, and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue The following is a previously aired broadcast. Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us, and we have a special guest with us today, and we're going to be talking about religious freedom. And, of course, that's under assault not only here in this country under COVID restrictions and uh, just draconian laws that we've experienced this last year, but also, of course, around the world and in other countries, and unfortunately in Western countries as we speak. But with us on the phone is Sam Brownback. He served as ambassador at large for international religious freedom from February 2018 until January of 2021. Uh, he also served as governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. And prior to that, he represented his home state uh, in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives while a member of the Senate. He worked on and actively on religious freedom issues in multiple countries and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. And with us on the phone is Ambassador, Governor, <laughs> Senator uh, uh, Sam Brownback. And I understand that the best thing you like to be called is Grandpa. Is that right, Sam? <laughs> well, that's right. That's the uh, best title. Uh, when I'm around my grandchildren, actually, they call me Pops. 
but uh, I, I love that title. That's just uh, that brings joy to my heart. <laughs> That's right. Well, we want to thank you as serving as the first um, ambassador for religious freedom and. The, the Lord has these ironies in life. I know that you actually worked for that position when you were in the U.S. Senate, probably not realizing that you would be the first appointed ambassador for religious freedom. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I actually, I wasn't the first one. I was the fifth one, but the position had just really not been um, accentuated much by State Department. It was a position. It was there. Uh, and uh, people would work in that role, but uh, under the Trump administration, uh, we made and they made uh, foreign, religious freedom a major foreign policy issue, so it really elevated the job, and it needed to be elevated. There's so much persecution of people of faith around the world. Most genocides in uh, recent memory are of religious minorities. Most recently, the Uyghurs in western China, and the, the granddaddy was uh, of the Jewish people in World War II, so... It was a position and an issue that really needed to be elevated. Trump administration did that, and I was uh, delighted to serve in that role when the position really got pushed up. Well, that's right. And, you know, of course, we watch these things at the Ohio Christian Alliance, and I was not aware that there would it had already been in practice, but not really, like you say, elevated to a position with what it was supposed to be, actually, and uh, a very active role at the State Department. And, of course, uh, you had to receive approval as the new ambassador uh, in the U.S. Senate. And, of course, when I think about Sam Brownback, I think of a very kind gentleman uh, who had friends, quite honestly, on both sides of the aisle when he served in the U.S. Senate, never compromising your positions or your values, but, uh, of course, uh, always a gentleman. I expected your confirmation to be overwhelming. Unfortunately, as indicative of what we see in recent years, the vitriol in Washington, uh, I was not aware that you just passed by one uh, one vote over the top at 51, with, uh, and it was... Uh, Vice President Pence, who had actually had to cast the deciding vote. Is, is that how it went down? That's right. That's right. I, it amazed me. It shocked me. I didn't think there was going to be any difficulty. But we had two members of the Senate, two Republicans that were gone. I think Chuck Schumer looked around and thought, we can take this nominee down. Uh, and it was because I'm pro-life. Uh, and other issues that I'd stood on strong for a number of years, but I had a lot of friends in the Senate, and they all said, yeah, we'll join you, and it ended up 49-49 with the vice president having to come up and um, break the tie. He had just gotten back from a trip to Israel the night before, uh, and I think uh, maybe uh, uh, Chuck Schumer thought, well, maybe he can't make it to the Hill where he'd be pinned somewhere else, but he came and broke the tie vote. It's still, I just... I. A position I helped create, people I'd worked with, they knew I would be active and, and uh, bipartisan in this job and standing up for all faiths, uh, but that's the, that's the nature of the partisan environment now. Well, that's right, and it's not Joe Lieberman's party. He, had, of course, went into no. retirement, and back in the day when he was there, I suspect that he would have carried a number of Democrats with him and confirmed your nomination. But unfortunately, we don't have that type of civility in Washington right now. We have just the opposite, unfortunately. But uh, again, we were so thankful that you were confirmed and that you served honorably in the role and actually very effectively, and we, we followed you. You were very 
very busy and actually around the world. Of course, uh, in Syria, of course, where the uh, Christians there in Iraq with the Chaldean Christians and, of course, uh, different uh, minority faiths around the world. Tell us a little bit about your time as uh, Ambassador for Religious Freedom on, in the Trump White House uh, as being appointed in the State Department. You know, what was really delightful about it uh, was I had a lot of support uh, from the administration. Vice President Pence was very supportive of the position. Secretary Pompeo was very supportive of the position, a fellow Kansan. uh, And that really made all the difference in the world. Uh, The big focus, really, and it still is for me, is China. Uh, They've just developed these um, high-tech persecution, uh, oppression systems, uh, using facial recognition with cameras everywhere, police stations everywhere to, to conduct a war on faith, all faiths, whether you're Christian or uh, Muslim or Buddhist or Falun Gong, uh, they just, they're at war. Uh, and so that's what a big part of uh, time I put was pushing back against China. And it wasn't just China. What I was deeply concerned about was these systems would start to be used by a number of authoritarian regimes to oppress people of faith. And I'm, I'm really concerned that that is what's going to take place. We have seen, of course, uh, the persecution of Christians on the rise around the world. Radical Islam in Africa, of course, uh, we have seen... Um, uh, report after report of literal massacre or abduction of, uh, of uh, Christian girls at schools and then families trying to pursue them, but then villages being attacked by uh, the different uh, radical Muslim groups. Uh, this is just one indication. Of course, we think about the Middle East, but now our eyes turn to Afghanistan, uh, where that probably, you know, when the U.S. presence over the last 20 years, there was the free practice of people to conduct their their faith. And there was a minority Christian community in Afghanistan and growing, but now with the Taliban in control, and uh, we've seen and heard reports of actual uh, atrocities against Christians by the Taliban. Can you confirm some of that, Senator, or if you're just saying you're, you've also heard those reports? I've been working with a group um, coordinating efforts to get religious minorities of Christian uh, members out of Afghanistan over the last month, and we I've heard any number of stories of atrocities uh, taking place. Now, I, I can't confirm those, but knowing what I do about the Taliban, I, it doesn't take any stretch of the imagination to believe that's taking place. And a big part of the Christian population in Afghanistan uh, are converts from Islam. Uh, Messianic Muslims, if you want to uh, say that, uh, people that have started following Jesus. Uh, and they are in particular difficulty because that's considered uh, blasphemy and apostasy, and it, it takes the death penalty with it. I, uh, they, they are amazing people willing to stand up for their faith. Many of them have experienced miracles themselves, healings, or even seen Jesus themselves. Uh, the ones when I get to have met with them in the past, I'm just uh, in awe uh, of their faith and their faith experience and their boldness to uh, proclaim and be a witness for what they believe and what they have seen. 
We've never seen anything in our lifetime of the way that the United States left so abruptly, and and actually by the administrations and uh, decisions, and actually this year, this week on Capitol Hill, uh, the top command is being grilled by members of Congress as to the debacle that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan that allowed the Taliban to come in, basically a terrorist army, uh, taking over Kabul, but all the different provinces and uh, towns and uh, committing atrocities against people. We've seen the images. We don't, uh, you know, the, the reports are uh, confirmed in that regard. Uh, human rights violations across Afghanistan. Now with the U.S. gone, uh, there are still independent groups uh, that have been actually flying, uh, bringing flights into Afghanistan and actually uh, leading people out on foot, on trail, uh, to other uh, protected regions uh, that are uh, under threat by the Taliban. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's ongoing, uh, and it has been successful. While our government has been all too willing to leave Americans uh, there and our allies there, uh, there are a real group of patriots, many of them foreign or, uh, former U.S. military operators, that are moving people out. I mean, there's, there's some are moving out on planes, many across the uh, land. I've uh, co-chair a coordinating group that's been uh, working with uh, a number of different entities that had people still on the ground, and these were generally Afghan nationals <clears throat> that had worked with uh, Western NGOs or religious organizations, or they themselves were converts, uh, and in, and they, they'll get killed if they get found. They're moving to safe houses, they're getting moved out of the country, uh, that um, the that these individuals, God bless them, are, are not leaving them behind. Uh, I, I thought our pulling out of Afghanistan was one of the worst things the U.S. government has done in decades. Uh, and because we left, we left some of our own citizens behind, but we also left our allies and people that had worked with us for decades uh, in that country. And we left them vulnerable to, be the, to the Taliban, to be persecuted, to be killed. And, and there are still people... Americans and others working hard, feverishly, to get them out. Well, obviously, there will be uh, ongoing hearings, and I suspect that if the Republicans take back the House of Representatives next year, which is probably projected to happen if you look at history, uh, they will take back uh, either one or the chambers. There will be hearings uh, on this as to what exactly happening was their intent here, because we left billions of dollars with of, uh, military equipment. Uh, so when we went in 20 years ago, which was basically a ragtag uh, group of terrorists, now we've armed a terrorist army in the Taliban. And so, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's I know that, you know, Senator, with your and Ambassador, with your experiences and knowledge of uh, foreign affairs and, and all, uh, this just has to be so disturbing to you to see our government act so recklessly and uh, irresponsibly. Your thoughts? It is. It is. I, I just, I'm beside myself of why uh, the Biden administration did this. This was totally unnecessary, and it was also totally predictable what would happen. When we had a status of forces problem in Iraq under the Obama administration, and the Obama administration pulled our troops back, we had the, the ISIS then in that region, which we called a JV, and they weren't thing of a JV. They, they came in and took over a third of Iraq, and we got a genocide of Yazidis and Christians that took place by this militant, radical Islamic group. 
Now you have the Taliban, who's more organized, with now more equipment. Uh, and what do you think we're going to get out of Afghanistan? Uh, I, I, and I wouldn't doubt we will end up being back in Afghanistan, just like we went back into Iraq uh, to stabilize that situation. And, and now it's much more stable and not a, the terrorist haven that it, that it had become. Well, that's right. And uh, my son served in Iraq in three different deployments uh, over two full years, and uh, he actually helped oversee elections. He uh, really started caring for the people when he was, uh, you know, back home and retired from the military. Then watched in 2014 as ISIS invaded northern Iraq and Mosul and uh, threatened Erbil. Uh, you know, we we started working the phone. Senator Portman actually was very busy about that. We worked with the. Uh, Chaldean Christian community here in the states, in Ohio and in uh, Michigan, uh, to advocate for their fellow countrymen, Christians in Iraq, and unfortunately, uh, some did not make it through. They 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 faced martyrdom at the hands of ISIS, and so again, these are real issues. These are real, uh, you know, uh, human rights and religious rights uh, uh, violations around the world, and. Um, and so I'm excited to hear, Senator, what and Ambassador, what you're going to be doing uh, now in your retirement. You're not going. You're, you're going about to launch a new project that I think that uh, I know our organization like to assist and partner with you in any way that we can. Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking. Well, a lot of what I'm doing right now and have been doing has been on international uh, religious freedom, and I think that's been critical and. And we're seeing the, the impacts in places like Afghanistan. We've just got to fight for people of faith, uh, Christians to get persecuted. And if we don't, nobody else will stand up for them. But I think we have to stand up for religious freedom here at home. Uh, I think we need to be a lot more organized of pushing for uh, religious freedom and explaining to the public the foundational principles of religious freedom, that this nation was built on this idea that that people of faith would be allowed to peacefully practice their faith. This is central to the American founding. It is also central to peace and stability and economic growth in this nation and around the world. And if the U.S. ever loses focus on this foundational human right and human dignity, we will be much the worse off, and so will the rest of the world. Because if we don't stand up for religious freedom here and around the world, there, are, there aren't any other countries that are going to do it uh, as well or as able uh, as the United States to do it. So that's why I'm going to be pushing for that more uh, domestically uh, here moving forward. Traditionally, we look at uh, China as a violator of human and religious rights, uh, even in India, uh, suppression in, in Turkey, of course, uh, in other nations uh, in, in the Middle East. We don't think of Western nations as oppressing religious freedom, but during the COVID uh, shutdowns, and even it's been extended in places Australia, New Zealand, and even Canada, uh, we're receiving reports. And of course, we've seen the arrests of pastors. We've seen the forced closure of churches. We've seen the seizure of clo- uh, church property when uh, congregants have uh, persisted to congregate. Uh, your thoughts along these lines is that uh, it's not just uh, in the Middle East or uh, in China, but we're seeing the Western nations taking uh, draconian measures and, and oppression. It's, it's, it's a frightening uh, trend. Your thoughts? Well, I think it is a frightening trend, and it's one that I think we have to stand up and, and push back uh, against and, and stand up for. You know, when you got the little sisters of the poor, even uh, 
during the Obama administration that gets told, okay, you have to provide um, uh, uh, birth control uh, measures, even though it's something you don't agree with in your faith. This is about the faith expression, and it's about forcing people to do things that are against their faith. And that's what I think we really have to stand up for, is that people should be allowed to peacefully practice their faith, whether you agree with the standards of their faith or not. This is foundational to religious freedom. It's foundational to human dignity. Uh, And that's what I, I really think we've got to start explaining really better to the public about why this is foundational. Imagine if Martin Luther King uh, had not been able to organize in the African-American churches the civil rights movement, uh, that people had said, well, we're not going to let you do that. What, what would happen in that movement? They were allowed to organize, uh, and, and he was a religious leader himself. Uh, and this gave birth to this beautiful movement and needed movement in this country. Yes. Uh, that's only part of why it's so important. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe, on D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue We're talking to Ambassador Sam Brownback, who served as the International Religious Freedom Ambassador in the State Department in the Trump administration from 2018 to 2021. He's now uh, back in Kansas, but he's continuing uh, his launch and support of religious liberty, uh, both here in the States and internationally. Ambassador, when I think about uh, the various groups that work to advocate for the persecuted uh, uh, religious minorities around the world, what are some of the effective groups that you worked with uh, or visited your office when you were in Washington? You know, I've seen many groups really stand up. Some of the mainline denominations uh, have done it a lot. The Baptists, uh, the Catholics uh, have done a great job. There's specialized groups uh, in defense of Christians. IDC has been one that's done that. Open Doors is a global group uh, that I've just recently affiliated with as a senior fellow. Um, And we just had a summit, International Religious Freedom Summit, uh, middle of July, where we had, uh, oh gosh, we were over 60 different groups that are standing for religious freedom of all faiths. 
Uh, we had Christians there, but we also had uh, Jewish groups and Muslim groups and Hindu and Buddhist and Falun Gong, and, uh, because it's about a common human right, not about theology. It's about a common human right, and that right is to do with your own soul as you see fit. You know, it's a fundamental right of man uh, to to uh, f- of religious freedom. These rights come from God, and you know this is what we're seeing in this country. As even we're seeing uh, basically an attack on our individual freedoms and our individual rights. Uh, lots of us are having to invoke those rights now uh, with the COVID vaccine mandates, and people for personal health or religious conscience are uh, opting not for the vaccine. And uh, they're having to get practiced in what is the law. And I have to say, even our own organization, we haven't, over the 20 years I've been heading up this organization, haven't done many religious exemptions. Well, we know about it now, and there's actually information on our website. There's a little helpful info sheet for people. If you're going to file a uh, religious exemption on vaccine, if your employer is uh, mandating that, uh, you can go to our website at ohioca.org, That's or just Google Ohio Christian Alliance, and the uh, information sheet is there, and it was a, kind of a walkthrough. Also help from Liberty Council. Matt Staver's group is doing some great work along those lines and can help you to file that religious exemption if you are being threatened with uh, termination of employment due to the vaccine mandate and for religious purposes or reasons that you've decided not to get the vaccine. You know, Senator, these are some of the kind of things that were happening right now uh, in the states, here in Ohio and across the country. Your thoughts along those lines? Well, um, I, I am for, I'm vaccinated, and I, uh, and I think the vaccine's a great gift, but I am not for mandates. I don't think people ought to be told uh, to do things. I think the cases should be presented to them. And if there's a religious reason, I, I think people, if they've got uh, some deeply held conviction uh, on their part, then they should be allowed to, to practice their faith as they, as they see fit. That's, you know, just part of the discussion that's taking place in our civil society today. And I, I think that's an important discussion to have take place. I hope people recognize that the, the key piece here uh, is that this is a human right. I think we get balled up on the issue of religious freedom or persecution as somehow something separate from fundamental human rights. It is a fundamental human right. It's our First Amendment. It's our First Amendment human right. Uh, and I, I think we have to constantly draw back to that point, is that this is a fundamental human right that goes with the dignity of the individual, and that that's its basis and its, and its importance. And it, it's, it's, it, uh, it needs to be greatly protected. Absolutely. Ambassador Brownback, we look forward to working with you on these issues, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of challenges to come down the road, unfortunately, here uh, at home and abroad that we want to be praying about. And we will be praying about the folks in Afghanistan that are actually receiving help and those that are reaching out to them. So again, thank you for being my guest today. Is there a way for people to follow you right now? Uh, yes, if they would like to. I've got a, print, uh, a Twitter account, uh, Samuel Brownback. Uh, they can uh, uh, get on that, and I uh, I hope they do. Absolutely. Thank you, Ambassador. We uh, appreciate it so much, and God bless you and your family and your continued work for religious freedom. God bless you. Take care, all. Thank you.
That is, again, Ambassador uh, Brownback, and uh, we, of course, appreciated taking time today. If you've missed any of today's program, you can hear its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.